meditation of our hearts this good Friday be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the first century, Rome executed criminals by crucifixion. It was intended to be a humiliating and agonizing death experience. There was no such thing as death with dignity in the first century. According to Roman antiquities, after a man was sentenced to die, he was stripped of all of his clothes and paraded through the streets of the city so that his punishment could literally be seen by all. He was required to carry a 50-pound cross piece, or sometimes he was forced to carry the entire 200-pound cross as the soldiers would follow along behind, whipping him all the way out to Golgotha. When they arrived at that place of execution, the criminal would both be nailed and tied with ropes to that cross beam, and then they would lift that cross beam up and let it drop in a notch in that one pole that stood up. Now, there's one minor inaccuracy we see in films and in paintings, and actually on my necktie, I realize, is that, that the crosses did not tower above the ground like artists show. Rather, the cross was very low to the ground so that the person who died, his feet maybe of only a foot or so above the ground. Part of the point of that was so that people, as they walked by, could actually look into the face of the person who was dying. Now, the position in which that person was crucified uh, made it difficult for them to breathe. Their legs were normally bent. Their feet were nailed to the base of the cross so that they could push up every once in a while just to grab a little breath until the pain in their legs became so unbearable that they had to drop back down. That process was intended to be slow and agonizing, and sometimes the one crucified died of shock or dehydration. But most often, it was because they lost the ability to support themselves on their weight, and therefore, they literally suffocated. However, it didn't happen quickly. It was not uncommon for death to take sometimes two and three days. But whenever the authorities decided, for whatever reason, they would break the legs of that person being crucified so that they could no longer push up and therefore would die suffocating in just a matter of minutes. Throughout history, the Romans crucified thousands of people in this fashion. As enlightened as that Roman Empire might have been, they certainly did not place much value on human life, and in particular, the life of one man from Galilee. After Pilate sentenced Jesus to die, he turned him over to the soldiers who mocked him, beat him, spit on him and placed a crown of thorns on his head. And believe me, the Roman soldiers were very good at dishing out punishment. This evening, I want us to look at three spiritual truths that are found in this story of the crucifixion. I think there are three lessons that will help us to experience his healing presence. Here's the first one. Jesus could not carry his own cross. Mosaic law, that's the Old Testament law, said you could, not, uh, you could not do a crucifixion within the city walls. And so the Romans 
let them use a hill outside of town, Golgotha, but they chose a place in particular that was close to a major road that went by so people could easily see what happens to a person when they oppose Caesar. So it was that Jesus began his journey to death, and considering the punishment that Jesus had already taken to this point, including that scourging of that horrible Roman whip, it was not surprising that he was physically unable to carry his cross. In Mark chapter 15, that I'm basing my message on tonight, verse 21, it says, A man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the country just then, and they forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, Cyrene is on the north shore of Africa. It is uh, what we would know today as modern-day Libya. It had a large Jewish population, and since Simon is a very Jewish name, no doubt Simon and his two boys had made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Bible says that he was just a passerby when he was grabbed by the Roman soldiers, most likely against his will. But Roman soldiers not only had the power to do that, they had the authority to do that, so he could not refuse. Now, Mark, you see, adds that little statement. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. He doesn't say anything about else about them because I think he feels that the people back in Rome, where he wrote the Gospel of Mark, probably knew who those two boys were. So he says nothing more. But we do find Paul mentioning a Roman Christian later named Rufus. And it could very well have been the same person that Mark referred to. See, Jesus could not carry his own cross, and so this unknown man, just a, an ordinary human person like you and I, had to carry it for him. And this is very ironic. But one of the most important lessons of the crucifixion is this, that even though Jesus couldn't carry his own cross, he is the only one who can help you carry yours. Do any of you here tonight know what it is to have more on your shoulders than you can possibly bear? Do you know what it feels like to be absolutely helpless and powerless? Jesus does. Through most of the Passion story, we see him standing strong and bold and courageous in the face of the worst kind of abuse. And now, with the end so near, his body completely gives out. He cannot take another step under his own strength. And friends, when you come to the place in your life when you feel, too, that you can no longer take another step in your own strength, I want you to know that Jesus has been there, too. Maybe you remember Hebrews 4, verse 15. It says, The high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. So whatever cross you bear, you don't have to bear it alone. Jesus has promised to help you bear it. Matthew 11, you know these familiar words, Come unto me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. There's a second lesson here in the crucifixion story, and it's this. Jesus could not save himself. Mark goes on and says, And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means Skull Hill. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Now, there is some scholarly speculation about what wine drugged with myrrh was intended to do. 
There are some, for example, who say that it was a drug that was intended to deaden the pain. Well, other people said it was a drug that was really a poison used to expedite death. But either way, Jesus did not accept the offer. He had been destined to drink the cup of his sacrificial death, and he intended to remain fully conscious until the bitter end. Mark goes on and says that they nailed him to the cross and gambled for his clothes, throwing dice to decide who'd get them. It was 9 a.m. when the crucifixion took place. A signboard was fastened to the cross above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two criminals were crucified with him, their crosses on either side of his, and the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, can you? Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we can see it and believe him. Now, oftentimes, executed criminals were the subject of great taunting and derision from the crowds. And actually, there's something in human nature, I think, that causes many people to want to gloat at the uh, punishment of other people. They do everything they can to add to this person's suffering. And we see this even yet today. For example, when a person is executed by the state, there are always two groups of people that gather outside the prison walls. There's always an anti-death penalty group holding a candlelight vigil and there's always another group of people who are not merely pro-death penalty, but they have gathered there specifically to celebrate the execution of that criminal. They often carry signs that say, burn in hell, so-and-so, or we hope you suffer like your victims, and on and on. I don't intend to get off the track tonight to a debate about the merits of the death penalty, but I'll say this, most people who support the death penalty do not support the festive atmosphere that takes place at executions. I can't imagine that going to an execution would be a wonderful evening's entertainment. But in first century Jerusalem, it was. There were people who considered crucifixions the great thing to do, much like we see hangings depicted in the old Wild West. When a man was condemned to die, they followed the procession out of, out of town towards Golgotha, and they entertained themselves all afternoon at that dying man's expense. Now, friends, Jesus could have saved himself, just as he could have prevented himself from even being there in the first place. He was there not because he was a victim of circumstance beyond his control, but he was there because he chose to lay down his life for the sake of the world. As Jesus was arrested, maybe some of you remember these words. He says these in Matthew. He said them to his disciples. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send, us, send them immediately? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must now happen? You see, in that sense, Jesus could have saved himself. But there is another sense in which he could not. Here's the point. Jesus could not save himself because he wanted to save you. 
See, saving you, saving me, forgiving your sins, forgiving my sins, giving you eternal life, meant that he had to die on that cross to pay the price for your sins, and he was more than willing to do it. He was willing to die so that you and I can live. He was willing to die so that you and I and everyone else who chooses to believe in him could be reconciled to God. So in spite of all the power that was available to him, right at his fingertips, he could have snapped his fingers, they could have all been done. He chose not to save himself because he wanted to save you. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus on that cross. It was his love for you that held him there. There's a third little lesson here in the crucifixion. It's this. Jesus experienced separation from God. Mark goes on and says, At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at that time, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the most difficult part of this story to tell. It's also the part that Mel Gibson absolutely could not capture in that movie, The Passion of the Christ. In that movie, if you remember, and it's been playing on television again the last couple of days, we saw Christ's anguish in the garden. We saw the injustice he suffered at the hands of the Romans. We saw the mistreatment from Pilate and the mistreatment he he got from everyone else. Those scenes are still buried in my mind, and those scenes are not only heart-wrenching and gut-wrenching, but they're also, they're just heartbreaking. But this little scene, when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think is beyond sometimes our ability to understand it. At this precise moment, the Son of God's own Father, the Son of God's own Father abandons him. Because at that very precise moment, the words spoken by Isaiah have come true. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. Second Corinthians goes on and says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. I hope you understand, friends, in that, in that one horrifying moment, Jesus experienced separation from God so that we could experience reconciliation with God. I mean, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I never ever have to cry out those words. Here's the very heart of the gospel. You and I can be reconciled to God. You and I can be in a right relationship with Him. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can have everlasting life. And it's all through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. A comment that I've heard many, many times from people who saw that movie, The Passion of the Christ, is that it it kind of gives a person a greater understanding of what Christ has done for us. And, And that's very true. The movie tells us what Christ did for us, but it doesn't really tell us why he did it. It depicts his sufferings, but it doesn't really explain explain them. And I seriously doubt that any movie ever could explain fully what the Bible has to say about it. 
In 1 Peter it says, He personally carried away our sins in His own body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. You have been healed by His wounds. See, Peter there is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And if you've seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ, and I watched just a little bit of it the other night as it came on, you may remember this verse appears on the screen before the movie actually begins. It comes from Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We're gathered here tonight, friends, because of the passion of Christ. His sufferings and death. His sufferings and death is our healing and our salvation. Through his wounds, you and I can experience the healing of our wounds. So I encourage you, strongly encourage you to meditate on the passion of Christ. Remember the garden. I mean, he was all alone in agony, but you are not all alone in yours. When you face your Gethsemane, he is there with you, and through praying that Gethsemane prayer, you will experience power over temptation. Remember his trial. He was declared guilty of crimes that he did not commit, and he received a death sentence he did not deserve. But he endured man's injustice so that you and I do not need to face God's justice for our sins, but rather experience God's mercy. And remember his crucifixion. He could not save himself because he wanted to save you. He experienced separation from God so that you can experience reconciliation to God. Moments before he died, he cried out, It is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Friends, though his work is finished on the cross, his work is not finished in you. He wants you to experience the fullness of a relationship with Him. He wants you to come alive with His life inside of you. He wants you to experience the power of His resurrection. That's why He gave His life for you.